Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about tennis and common sense, and we're all out of common sense. This is Tennis Unfiltered. Five, four, three, two, one. I'm James Gray of the iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. I've got our resident tennis coach, Calvin Beton, with me at the moment. George Belshaw is inbound i am told he is a slave to the great british train network which of course means that we're lucky he's arriving at all never mind um a few minutes late so we'll 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 get him in when he when he gets here but in the meantime calvin and i will will soldier on without him we've got loads to talk about this week we're going to talk about the russians coming back to wimbledon which broke sort of as we were recording last week um, we'll also talk about the return of Novak Djokovic in Monte Carlo, uh, but the non-return of Rafa Nadal. Billie Jean King Cup qualifying is coming up. Garbinia Muguruza taking a break. Kasper Ruud's winning a clay court 250. There's nothing new there uh, and plenty more. And we'll also, of course, and maybe we'll start, in fact, with your questions. Uh, remember, if you want to uh, ask a question, there's loads of ways you can do it. You can get in touch on Twitter at Unfilter Tennis. You can email us, as uh, plenty of you have this week, actually, uh, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com. I should also uh, say a little shout-out and a thank you to everyone who voted for us in the Sports Podcast Awards, which you will have heard me plugging and seen me plugging on social media and all sorts of things. Um, results, I think, are out in the next day or two, so we await eagerly uh, to find out awards night in fact is april the 13th i'm told so we will we'll see how we got on but even if we don't win um and it is a possibility as always uh, I, I just want to say thank you to everyone who voted and who told other people on twitter to vote and that sort of thing it um it really was quite quite heartwarming actually uh, and kind of with that in mind and as a little thank you and as you kind of become our habit um we're going to start with some listener questions uh, and we're going to start appropriately enough in monte carlo melanie b 
uh, on Twitter. I, I don't know if it's that Melanie B. I assume it's not. I mean, I don't know how many Spice Girls we've got listening to the show, Calvin, but I, if if we're going to have one, I reckon Mel B might be the kind of... I reckon she... I'm, I suppose you'd say Sporty Spice, maybe, but she's not that sporty, so... I don't know. Uh, anyway, before I get down some sort of Spice Girl rabbit hole. Calvin, should there be any cause for concern about Cam Norrie's recent dip in form? Ask Mel B on Twitter. And what are your thoughts on Juan Martín Del Potro's comeback? Well, um, let's start with Norrie, because if we start with Del Potro, we could be here all day. Um, she's, of course, referring to a bit of a tough start to the year. Um, in Miami, he lost in the first round to Greg uh, Barrier. He's just lost in the first round of Monte Carlo to um, Cherandolo. He even lost in the first round of the doubles, I see, with uh, Ben Shelton. Calvin, what do you make of it all? I mean, it has been a pretty rotten run for him, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, but before that, he was on decent form, to be mm. fair. I think he won one and made a final in South America mm. uh, before that. So, yeah, he's, he's dropped form a bit. I, I, think, I, I think cause for concern is probably the wrong way to put it. I don't think he'll be over the moon with his form. Um, and, you know, you would say that, although he's very decent on clay, you'd say it's probably his worst surface just. Mm. He's very, very good on hard courts and um, he's decent on the grass. Um, so... Yeah, I think he's probably just just not. He's probably playing slightly above his level or or at the top of his level pre Miami, and he's probably just sort of dropped down a bit now below what you'd expect his level to be. Um, but you know, Monte Carlo is Monte Carlo. You get some strange results purely because of its weird place in the calendar directly mm. after Miami. I think also with Cam and what a lot of Brits or maybe British tennis fans who who maybe only follow Cam or, or only f- kind of have an eye on Brits. I'm not saying that's what Manly B is, but they will have got used to over the last year or two, and partly because of the kind of narrative that we tend to tell about Cam, which I think is a correct one, to his kind of consistency and, and being the kind of guy who doesn't lose first round and, you know, picking up at least two or three wins most weeks. So when he then comes out and starts losing first round to someone you never heard of, then it probably is a, a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Because he is someone we know is Mr. Consistent. Yeah, um, but at the same time, he's the way that he plays, he's a guy who is capable of losing to players who play particularly well. Because mm. his strategy and his game plan is based on, I'm going to put the ball in court, mainly, um, and see if he can beat me. Because he, he's very fit, he's very fast around the court, he moves great. Um, but but when you play that type of game, you're open up to some guy just coming and swinging and and hitting a few winners past you. Um, so, Do yeah. you think um, we've often talked about it with other people? You know, Andy Murray, for example. We we endlessly talk about how he needs to change his game style and, and add more weapons and that kind of thing. Do Do you think with Norrie just in a little bit of a, a flat spot? there is a, a case to be made that he should be looking to add more to his game. I know players are always looking to add more to their game, but given his very specific game style, should he be thinking, what's my plan B? What's my, in two years' time, the kind of player I want to look like? Or or is this just the game he has to keep playing and hope that it kind of keeps serving him well? I think it's the latter. I think at, that, at his age and his stage in his career, you know, you kind of are what you are at that point. Um, I think he's unlikely to be adding anything, particularly with his... Like his forehand grip, it, it's he's never going to flatten it out and and hit through it and hit big balls. Um, his backhand's probably his best shot. Um, he serves okay. You know, it's one of those you might be hoping to get one or two percent more. But I think in Cam's position, probably what you're hoping for is more just to to 
to be more consistent and week in, week out consistent, get your ranking to such a place that you just keep getting seeded higher in the slams and avoiding the top players in the world till later on in the slams and that helps you get your ranking even higher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think, you know, once you get to, I think Cam is 27 or 28 now, you're not adding shots to your game at that. Um, you know, you get people who like to go, oh, well, you know, the Dal added a backhand drive. Started having an extra 20 mile an hour on his backhand when he was 34, which is just bullshit. That just never happened. <laughs> um, um, and what they do is they kind of watch him play in the first round of the French Open where he's absolutely battering somebody and then watch him like streak off a few backhand winners because he's just letting his arms go a little bit and they'll go, oh, what's this new shot that Nadal's got here? And it's just like, you know, his new shot is being 20% better than the bloke at the other end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when you're absolutely battering somebody, you're going to let your arm go a bit. And it's like the same thing as when the, when people go like about Federer, when he came back and he he won those three slams and he beat Nadal, they go, you know, he added a backhand drive. Like, no, he always had a backhand drive. He started hitting his backhand drive a bit more. Like (laughs) he didn't add anything to his game. Uh, But yeah, at that age, look, you know, you don't get people adding new shots to their game at, past the age of sort of 25 or hmm. things like that and, and i guess that's the thing like I, I i find the last year or so of cam and, and it's the inevitability of like professional sport and also um i guess the media as well is that you know he he made that breakthrough he he first of all he became british number one and we said okay well you never got it past the third round of slam so you sort of need to do that don't you and he said yes of course like i'm gonna change my calendar a bit i'm gonna play a few fewer tournaments i'm gonna try and peak for grand slams and then he did do that, and he obviously made the semi-final of Wimbledon, but otherwise didn't really necessarily do that at Slams. So he said, well, what's the point in you know, not playing loads of tournaments, so I'm still going to cock up the Slams. I'm actually better if I'm playing quite a lot of tennis anyway. And then he goes back to, to playing that. And I, I, I'm not saying he's, he's lost his way a bit by any stretch, because it's an overreaction to a couple of bad weeks. But I do think like he seems to have reacted to the, the changes in his life that have come with being a top 20, being a top 10 player. Um, and and maybe you might see him go back. I also wonder, and look, his coach, Facundo, is you know extremely highly regarded. Um, I also wonder, and we'll talk a bit about coaching changes later, like whether there might be scope for a new voice in, in Cam Norrie's ear, because he's obviously been with Faku for well, as long as I can remember now, really. I mean, he only turned pro six years ago, but he's he's been with Faku most of that time. He's obviously worked a bit with James Trotman back in the UK, but I don't know. I, I wonder if there might be a scope for a different voice in his ear. Um, I wouldn't have thought we'd see any changes there. And, you know, look, we're talking about two or three weeks. Like, you know, he was in, he lost to Rublev the week before, the, the tournament before in... Um, Indian Wells, yeah. Indian Wells, which is no shame. You know, him and Rublev tend to go toe-to-toe. They When they play each other, they win half and half each. Um, and then he had a bad bad time in Miami, and then he's you know first clay court tournament has just gone out early here. But like I said before that, he was in pretty decent form. Um, he's, he's, is he still? There's only him and Sinner that have beaten Alcaraz this year, isn't there? Yeah, sounds about yeah, right. So you know, and then the other match he played Alcaraz twice. He lost to him once in three sets and beat him the other time. So mm. I'm I'm struggling to get on board with that. You know, there's real cause for concern. And look, who is in form in the top ten other than Alcaraz? Sinner and Djokovic who only plays half the tournaments. You look at the other players and it's Rude's, Rude's playing like a drain and I'm, I don't think last week really tra- changes anything being that the rankings of the players that he beat. Rublev's not playing great at all. Um, 
City passes in no sort of form this year. Medvedev's Medvedev's flying. Medvedev, sorry, yeah. yeah, but you've got now. What, what that's what I'm trying to say though. You've got kind of the top. You've kind of got the top three players in the world who mm. are all in very good form, and the other the others in the top ten are in no sort of form. Mm. So you know, I wouldn't think he's any different to that. Quite uh, well. There's your answer, Mel B. Should there be any cause for concern? No, don't think there should be. Uh, which is good news, and we'll. And as you say, you know, Clay's not Cam's best surface, but he did go very well in the south in South America. Albeit, you know, again, it's a slightly weird tour that little bit. But um, I'd be quite intrigued to see. I mean, that Monte Carlo result doesn't fill me with confidence, but I think we could potentially see Cam do some decent damage on the clay this year, and I think he would expect to. Um, Look, at any tournament that you go to, and I know Drapes beat one today, you do not want to be seen an Argentinian on the first clay, first clay court tournament of a swing. Yeah, like they they can play on clay courts. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's move on to the other half of Melby's question, which is, what are your thoughts on Juan Martín del Potro's comeback? I mean, Calvin, I know you, you you're ridiculously excited about it if it ever happens, but um, you're allowed one minute of waxing lyrical again. I, I hope he does. I don't. I think it's been sort of he's spoken about it, but I don't know whether he's thinking if he's going to do it. I think it has to be right. I'm coming back to play. I'm coming back to join the tour. I don't. As much as I think the guy's brilliant, he's my favourite tennis player of the last. 15 years probably as much as i think he's brilliant i don't and i don't think he would do this i don't want to see him just coming back and saying i want to just play the u.s open one more time because i don't like that kind of thing it takes a play he'll get a wild card all day long because he's won it but it takes a place of somebody but i I'd, I'd like to and also you can't do that he's just going to get battered if he does that i think mm. it has to be right i'm fully fit again um i'm ready to compete on the tour at, at the highest level of the game which is what what he can do He's a bit mm. different from the others who've done that, though, because the way he plays, he just needs to be able to hit winners. Mm. Um, he's not like, you know, when you see some of the other guys coming back and they have to be moving and, you know, it's an issue like that. If he's still got his forehand and his serve and he can move a little bit, he's still a threat to anybody on a hard court. Mm. Uh, let's move on to another returning uh, legend of the game in Stanver Rinker because we had an email from Down Under Darwin, Australia from Mark Dr. Handsome as he calls himself um, he says Calvin absolutely love how brutally honest you are state harsh but very accurate statements many podcasters are too afraid to say honestly uh, Calvin's going to need new headphones to fit around his enormous head uh, keep that brutality yet accurate statements coming speaking of brutality I have two questions for you we'll come on to the second one later but here's the first um is anyone noticing that Stan the man, the drinker, is tremendously out of shape? I just watched the recent Elvis movie and his sweaty look resembles that of Elvis's final performance on stage under the lights, singing Unchained Melody. Is tennis well and truly past this somewhat of a legend? Um, I mean, Calvin, might, you may think differently, but I, I've always looked at Stan Wawrinka and thought he could drop a few pounds and it, it's never stopped him before. So is that just his natural body shape? Yeah, I think it's. I think that's harsh comparing him to late era Elvis. I mean, Christ, he's like the guy was living on like deep fried ice cream and peanut butter sandwiches. Like, <laughs> he's not. But um, yeah, uh, look, he's, he's a weird one, Stan. He's he's, look, he's one of those people, and you get a lot of them. Um, kind of like, I guess, kind of Wayne Rooney was a bit like this as well. They're just big. The natural body is big, but it's not necessarily out of shape. Mm. I think what you tend to find with that type of player is, is that once they're not playing professional sport anymore, they quickly add weight. Yeah. Um, but in fairness to Stan, and I've thought this and I've seen him in person at tournaments, you look at him and he's there when he's playing and he's like, you know, he, he does sweat a lot. He's one of those guys who perspires quite a lot. 
um, and you think, geez, stands a bit out of shape. And then he goes to change his shirt, takes his top off, and it's like a washboard under there. Mm. And you know, it's, it's just one of those strange body shapes. But he's not out of shape. Um, no. I think you know, but you know, we do know that, as we said before, Stan he does enjoy himself. Um, he doesn't live the Spartan lifestyle like some of the tennis players do, which which fair play uh, to him. But I, I, he's definitely not out of shape. He's in he's in excellent shape, and he always has been. To be fair. And also, it should be noted, he is winning matches. You know, he beat, yeah. he won three matches in Indian Wells. He beat Holger Rune in Indian Wells, who played very well this year. Um, he's in the second round in Monte Carlo. He beat Talon Grexpor in the first round, which doesn't sound like much, but Talon Grexpor is 14th in the race this year. Like, he's been playing yeah. quite a lot of decent tennis. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I, I compare him to Luke Shaw, who, um, yeah. for football fans, the Manchester United left back, who obviously always gets teased for being fat now he's he's by no means fat and funnily enough i interviewed his private chef um a couple of years ago and i i sort of was was pussyfooting around it and i said oh you know people some people don't think luke's in great nick and he's like some people call him fat i'm aware of this he's ripped he's the most shredded man i've ever met um and obviously he has a private chef which helps i like to think that even i would be in decent nick but yeah it's, it's just it's on those people who they look sort of lumpy um, yeah. Like, yeah, I, I know you mean Rooney's a good comparison, and yeah, probably once Stan Plus stops playing tennis, he might balloon. I, I was at a boxing event last week, and I saw a guy who was world champion in the super middleweight division, which is not, you know, that's 160 odd pounds, so not huge. And he would obviously make that weight regularly. And he only retired maybe two or three years ago. And my goodness, I mean, he'd struggle to make cruiserweight now. Like, he's really absolutely ballooned. Yeah, um, it's not, it's not pretty. Um, yeah, no Spartan lifestyle for him. But I won't name him uh, because that seems unfair. And you can just look at photos. I'm not wrong. Uh, ben on email says, I have a question about league slash team tennis, uh, which seems to be big in France, Germany, Italy and US college. It looks like an easy way to solve a lot of the problems uh, of players not getting guaranteed income, sponsorship and the after US Open dip. Could there be some sort of Champions League format copied from September to November in Europe? Also be interested to know a bit more about the level and money involved in the Euro Leagues. Always enjoyed the pod. Cheers. Um, Calvin, this is something you know a reasonable amount about. Yeah, um, league tennis in Europe. I mean, US college tennis is a bit different. That's completely different. Uh, you have to go to one of the colleges, obviously. Um, but league tennis in Europe is, is quite a big thing. Certainly in France, it's massive. Germany, it's very big. Italy, it's, it's gotten very big. Um, where basically the clubs pay players to come and play for their clubs um, in, I guess it's maybe somewhere between eight and 12 matches per year that are all played in a season. So France is a strange one in that the top division in France, which is very, very high standard in that all of the top French players will play in that, even even if they're in the top 10 in the world, they will still turn out for their clubs in that. And the, the top division plays at a different time to the rest of the divisions. Um and Germany's kind of similar. The Bundesliga is very high level. You get a lot of the doubles players uh, turning out and playing in that um, Italian league. Most players, most players in the top five, six hundred in the world will try and get a at least a French league or a German and or a German league uh, and that kind of thing because they they pay quite well and the standard is is excellent. Mm. Um, it's difficult to the question about saying could we have a Champions League. I, I don't think that's possible just because of the alignment of when the seasons are and that kind of thing. And what you find, as I said there, is that players will try and find 
play it it's not like in football where you play for a team and that's who you play for throughout the year in in german and french leagues a player will try and play some french league and they'll play for their club in that and they'll get paid and then they'll try and play some german league at a different start of the season different time of the season and then maybe some italian league and dutch league and that kind of thing so they'll go and try and get as much league tennis as their schedule allows um, and as they can get in, so it's 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 a bit difficult to say that. And also, I don't think the clubs would be that bothered about doing that because they already have a pretty full schedule, and players can't get anything else in. Hmm. Um, but the thing is, and also a question that that I get asked about this is why do we not have this type of thing in in Britain? And, and the main the main reason is because we just don't have the culture in in France, particularly in France, but also in Germany. Basically, what happens is on a Sunday afternoon, local people will you go and watch your tennis team play, and you go to the tennis club and you you have a few drinks there, you have you, you have some food there, and the tennis matches are on, and and they get huge crowds in that. Um, we just don't have that in Britain, and that's basically where the money comes from. That's where then spot because you're getting big crowds there, you get sponsors in the clubs, lo local companies sponsor the clubs, and we just don't have that culture where you know in Britain and this is not tennis's fault by any stretch but it's not a thing wherein you go and watch your tennis team on a Sunday afternoon mm. um, that just doesn't happen yeah and I guess it's the challenge it comes back to the same challenge which is for any sport that exists outside of football's sphere which as people in the UK will know and as is true in many countries in the world football is an absolute behemoth and I, I would suggest that England or certainly England possibly the UK is maybe the most monocultural place when it comes to sport. Like, I'm trying to yeah. think of another country that is as... Do like, if you think about the second biggest sport... Actually, here's a question for you, Calvin, a little bit of trivia. Do you know what the second biggest team sport in the UK is by participation? Well, I know in the world it's basketball, so I assume it's basketball in yeah, the Yeah, it's UK. also basketball, which surprised me. I was writing... Yeah. I interviewed the Basketball League CEO the other day, and we were talking about it, and it, it genuinely shocked me that it was so big, and yet... The basketball culture, like at the professional level, is actually quite minimal. Um, but it's the same for all clubs, you know, rugby union, cricket, uh, golf, I guess, which is an individual sport. But they're always considered the traditional big sports in the UK. And the challenge is always getting people in through the door and interested in the grassroots level game, isn't it? Yeah, and and like you say, that we play so many sports in the UK. That's where the difficulty is, where if you go mm. to Germany... And France, I mean, France has a, in certain places of France, they're quite into their rugby, mm. but not nationwide. I guess that's mm. similar to Britain, to be honest. Yeah. But it's basically football and tennis. Yeah. Um, and it tends to be, what, what you tend to get is big cities, it's football, and in, mm. in the other places, it's tennis. In rural um, France, yeah. And Germany's, Germany's a bit different because Germany has a sports club culture. Yeah. Where where the the clubs so if you're if you're Bayern Munich for example you have the football team you have the basketball team you have the tennis team and that kind of thing so there's a big uh, that each club has all the sports and and the people will support the club at all the sports um, so it's a bit it's a bit different there hmm. and it's yeah it's the same in Spain isn't it like Barcelona's Barcelona yeah. have about nine different sporting teams you know volleyball yeah, yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, it is a little bit different, but interesting. Yeah, and and you say Luke Luke plays a bit in Germany for for a team over there. He plays. He's played. He didn't play the last couple of years, but I understand he's playing this year. Uh, right. I think he said. I don't know if uh, if Henry and Jules are playing um, are playing for a team this year. I don't know. It tends to be. It's a bit strange because you tend to. It's all done by kind of word of mouth. 
So, um, you know, if you if a player, and I've had a few players have gone, you know, I wouldn't mind playing some German league. And it's quite difficult unless you have a contact to actually <laughs> find a way into it. Yeah. But but what you do get is you get some strange players with like lower rank down and they'll go, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so asked me if I play for their team. So, um, and and they end up getting paid quite a bit. But I know Luke is playing for the same team as his partner, Sam Fabique, uh, in German league. So I think that's later on in the year, though. Uh, you mentioned Henry and Jules when you came on um, to the call before we hit record. You're a little bit still down from yesterday. They made the final in uh, Houston. Yeah, uh, it was a strange week because it rained basically for the whole week. Um, so they played their first match on Monday, which uh, was very early for a doubles match. Um, they played it Monday and they won that. And then they didn't play again until eight o'clock on Saturday night, um, their time. And because of that, you had then because a lot they had a few singles players playing in the doubles, so the little bits of tennis that they got played through the week obviously had to be singles, and then the single the doubles matches couldn't go on until the singles players had played singles, so you had a lot of withdrawals and that kind of thing. And then obviously there was Monte Carlo starting, so a lot of players were pulling out to get to Monte Carlo. So it seemed a strange one, but they won a close match in their semi and they lost a close match in the final. Mm. But because of the the idiocy of <clears throat> TV rights. Um, I didn't watch a single point being played of that because ATP 250s is the only doubles tennis that you can't watch anywhere in the world. Hmm. Should have flown you out for it, Calvin. You could have, could have sat and watched sat and watched the rain for a week. It would have been glorious. Yeah. Um, and I, you mentioned that even if they're up to I think 54 and five in the world, that might be about right. And you mentioned that had they won the final, they would only have gone up another two or three places. I mean. That is going to be maybe the story of the next six months for them, isn't it? Just like like clawing their way up a couple of places until they eventually start getting the automatic entry. I mean, it's it's really difficult because they what when you're ranked at that ranking, you basically need to get into and win matches in the Masters and the Slams. Hmm. Otherwise, you kind of get stuck there because yeah, if you're winning two fifties, you're not really moving anywhere, and the two fifties are all you're really getting in. Maybe sneak the odd five hundred. Um, mm. if there's two in one week um, and that kind of thing. But as we're seeing again this week, they couldn't play um, Monaco. They won't be able to play. It's doubtful they'll be able to play Rome and Madrid just because there's a load of single players who are playing it who, as we've discussed before, definitely will pull out of the tournament after they've played one or two matches. Mm. Frustrating, um, I'm sure. And yeah, it's frustrating to watch as well. And I don't know if there's an easy fix, but I'm not sure there's much appetite for an easy fix, frankly. But um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, Right, we'll move on. I think we'll move on to Dominic Team because uh, Rachel on email, and I'm sorry to be talking about Dominic Team before his biggest fan in the media, George Belshaw, has joined us, but I'm, I'm hopeful that he might be inbound in the next couple of minutes so we'll, we'll hopefully get him but anyway uh, Rachel on email says um, oh she she's chiming in on uh, Ostapenko's uh, outfits from last week and says my understanding is the outfits she wears are from her own clothing label um, which doesn't surprise me at all because no uh, as I said last week I'm not sure anyone would sponsor her to wear them so um, I, I'm fascinated to know how many I mean, Ostapenko's a massive star in her own country, so maybe she sells loads of clothes there. But anyway, uh, here's my question, says Rachel. In case you have a moment to discuss on the podcast, what is going on with Dominic Team, and what will happen to him? Will he ever return to his former self? I'm a long-time fan of Team, and I'm increasingly worried 
Um, thank you very much for your entertaining and informative podcast. Thank you, Rachel, for your question. Um, we were going to discuss Dominic Team anyway because he split with his coach, uh, Nicholas Masu, this week uh, after four years working with him, which was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, Masu helped him to uh, obviously winning the US Open title, reaching the final of the French and the Australian, and a couple of Masters titles as well. So something of a surprise. Um, team said, what an incredible journey. It all started in early 2019. You came along with your incredible energy and extreme love for the sport. That's how we won the US Open and Indian Wells. We also reached the final of Australian Open, French Open, twice ATP finals. I think that shows we're an incredible team, but unfortunately everything has an end and this came now. We have decided together that we will go different ways starting next next week. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for this incredible and beautiful time, Nico. I wish you only the best and our friendship will last together. Last Excuse me, our friendship will last forever. Calvin, su- surprising to see him split with a coach when the problem seems to be made physical. I mean, you never know what's going on behind the scenes, obviously, but. Yeah, um, I found it a weird one, yeah. Um, don't really know as to where you say, where does he go? I mean, he's a strange player because he has two main facets that's the reason he got so high. One is that he can hit the ball phenomenally hard. And two, he's probably the best mover in the game over the last 10 years um, around a tennis court. Um, he still has the movement around the court. He hasn't injured, you know, or if he has injured anything in his lower body, that's fully recovered. Um, he still has his backhand, which is a great backhand. But as I keep saying, there's no more pointless weapon than a great backhand. Um, but it's his forehand. He can't rip the forehand like he used to because he's had wrist problems. Hmm. And that was basically why he the main reason why he won slams um or a slam and made the final of others because he could hit his forehand phenomenally heavy and phenomenally hard and now he can't because of the grip change he's still he's getting to stage where he's got a quite a decent forehand now but having had to change the grip you're changing the mechanics of what made a shot so good and it's unlikely that you know it's having watched tennis. You, I've only, I've not seen many players with a forehand as good as Dominic Team over the last few years. So it's unlikely that he'll suddenly develop a completely different, but other forehand that is just as good as Dominic Team's forehand. <laughs> um, so I don't, um, I'm dubious as to whether he gets back to Grand Slam winning. He might, because of everything else with experience and and his movement and you know, the rest of it, and he might be able to find some way of hitting the forehand sort of 70, 80% as well, then he might find his way back into the top 20. I'd I'd be surprised if we see him back in the top 10 in the world. Well, he's currently scraping his way back into the top 100. He did briefly make it earlier in the year, but um, then went on a losing streak of five matches in a row. Picked up two wins in Estoril last week, beat Ben Shelton in straight set, which is quite impressive, but then lost to Kentin Alice. Uh, he has just beaten Richard Gasquet, one and four in the first round of Monte Carlo, which I feel like if you're Dominic team and looking for easy wins, that that must be an absolute dream of a dream of a result um, and a draw to say the least. Um, and as though he knew we were talking about Dominic team, George Belshaw has appeared fresh from a British Rail nightmare. Uh, George, how are you? I'm good. I've, I've had a bit of a disaster. I, uh, <laughs> How many times do you come on this podcast and your first <laughs> words are, I've had a bit of a disaster? I assume you left your mic in Birmingham. I haven't. No, I'm using oh, it. Oh, great. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm sure you are. I've set it up quite quickly, so Impressive. hopefully it sounds okay. Um, 
Yeah, I arrived at Birmingham Moor Street at 2.15 to see my train was cancelled. Um, so I asked uh, one of the workers there if the next one was definitely coming. They said, yes, that's fine. Um, so I, I sat in the station, had a beer, I had 45 minutes. So I thought, sit sit down nicely and have a Peroni. And I could see there was like a tiny queue of people kind of waiting at about <laughs> half past two. And I thought, this is all fine. No one's said anything weird. Anyway, I go walk through the scanner to get on my train and uh, they say, oh, where are you going? I said, to London. Oh, turn around. There's a queue going back about oh, no. bloody two miles down the road. So thank you very much to whoever was working there and didn't bother to inform me when I arrived there. <laughs> I was very pleased with that. Um, so then I got through the queue onto the next train, five people away, and then they... They shut it off, so I had to wait an extra hour for a train. So I apologise for being late, but it it wasn't entirely all my fault for once. It's all right. We, we've had a, a lovely time answering our, our listeners' questions. Uh, we've talked about... Well, I mean, you'll listen back to the first half, so you'll know what you've missed. Well, Go on, George. Well, I was going to say, one of the questions I, I read, and I was like, I can't answer this, so I'm glad <laughs> Calvin... Presumably Calvin's taken that one on the leagues around Europe. Ah, uh, so yes. I, it was, it was, I look forward to listening to that, because I yeah. was interested to hear the answer. Um, well, we were just talking about, because Rachel uh, on email asked uh, about Dominic Team and what will happen to him if he'll ever return to his former self. Calvin says he doesn't think he will make it back to the top 10. He is just about back in the top 100. I mean, he's obviously splitting with Masu is a bit of a surprise as well. Yeah, it was it was a little bit of a surprise. I mean, it, it's obviously not going that well for team. There's there's flashes where he gets to the odd quarterfinal. I think possibly one semifinal in, uh, before. Yeah, one semifinal in Antwerp and the quarterfinal. Not that I'm in, following uh, his career too closely off the top <laughs> of my head. Um, but yeah, he, he, he's not been the same player, has he? And is particularly that forehand that's just just not not come anywhere close to what it was. Um, and it's a shame, really. I mean, it was it was interesting seeing kind of Masu. You know the articles about him and Masu splitting up and what they actually achieved. I think you sometimes underestimate just how good Dominic Team was, kind of towards the end. You know, he's reaching finals of the US, uh, obviously winning that one, Australia, a couple of French Open finals. You know, he was for me, he was comfortably the best player outside of Novak and Rapper at that time. And yeah, it's just it's, it was all been quite a disappointing fall from grace really um so be... i'd love him to be back as you well know but I, <laughs> i'm leaning towards calvin of losing faith even as a a team believer uh, i don't know nicola masu very much other than he was nicknamed el vampiro the vampire when he was a player um and is obviously uh, an olympic gold medalist but i i'm guessing given that team's previous coach was Gunther, um, who is one of the hardest taskmasters in the game and incredibly intense, that Masu was perhaps of a similar kind of work ethic and attitude to things. Um, so I'll be quite intrigued to see who who team ends up with next, really, because I'm not sure you know, whether he wants something different. or I, I sometimes wonder when you get guys who've had these big injuries and had to make these, as Calvin discussed, like specific technical changes... It's like I need someone who gets this, like someone who's got specific experience of doing this. And I remember when Tiger Woods had back surgery that no one had ever had and then become a professional golfer again. He sacked his coach because he was like, well, what's the point? Like, he, he doesn't have a clue what's going on in my body. And yet I think he actually didn't get another coach because he was like, no one does. No one's ever done this. 
Um, and I sometimes think the same with Murray. The other thing, and I was thinking about Andy Murray in this um, particular circumstance, is whether Masu's looked at it and gone, Masu, sorry, um, your expectations are unrealistic and we can't, you know, we, we're, we're not going to achieve the same things here. We can't, we can't see ourselves going on the same pathway. And I sometimes wonder whether that happened a couple of times with Murray in, in recent months where, you know, a coach has come in, worked with him for a bit and Murray's gone, right, how are we going to get back to world number one? And the coach has gone, well, I, we're not, so I, I'm not going to work with you because <laughs> like, if we're not working towards the same realistic goal, then it's not necessarily going to work. Anyway, we await with interest uh, to see exactly what goes on uh, with Dominic team going forward. And as I say, he's into the next round in Monte Carlo. So that, in the short term, a positive. Uh, I've got another question from Dr. Handsome, who who asked a question earlier. And I've got a second Oh, I didn't realise I'd written in this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. Um, he says, what do you believe is the main factor with the women and their inconsistency? He specifically means in tennis, not just generally. Um, I always tell my mates, if you bet on tennis, go for the women's. Last year, I put $1,000. I won $1,000 putting 10 bucks on Rybakina at Wimbledon. This would never happen in the men's game. Well, since Goran Ivanisevic. Thoughts? I, I mean, he is right that uh, Goran, I mean, Goran Ivanisevic has been the biggest prize winner of the 21st century of a Grand Slam. I'm trying to think who the next biggest surprise winner of a Grand Slam has been. I don't know I mean, if I... He- even Izovic was still like a good player before that as well. Yeah, but he was, was like, a wild card, wasn't he? Like, he was, yeah. But like, he, I swear he'd been like world number two before that, hadn't he? Might be wrong. He had been world number two, yeah. I think yeah. Um, Agassi winning the US Open in 94 was, was very much out of the blue as well. Um, I think he was well down the rankings at that, at that stage. I'm trying to think 21st century, if there's anyone who has kind of been of that that magnitude or even Again, close really the 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 um the strange period from oh, yeah. 2000 to 2005 ish would have had a few gaston um, gaudio thomas Johansson. yeah Gaud- gaudio was a big one yeah yeah um, vavrinka's first slam was quite a big surprise i mean around then he'd been kind of top 20 before then um kind of 2040 i know in hindsight it doesn't look like that big a surprise but that that at the time i think was even though he'd like shown quite good signs of improving, it, that was in the the height of the big four stronghold, and didn't really feel like anyone else could come through. So that that probably was. Up but he there. was still a number eight seed. <laughs> like, like, but, but I know, but I know, but I think it's just the context of how good those guys were. That yeah. you know, anyone who was outside of them winning it, you know, no one did win. Yeah, Chilich, I guess, twenty fourteen. That I was thinking about Chilich, but um, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you sort of have to take yourself back. But I'm not sure. The I'd, this hasn't always been the case in the women's game though. If you go back to, um, well, I mean even back to sort of um, early Williams era, but before that in the sort of Graf, Celes, Sanchez Vicario, you know it was always one of those three or mm. Conchita Martinez and um, and then Navratilova. It's not like you can say oh women's tennis has always been chaotic. The specific reason I think. That it's the major, um, well, the main reason is because the women play such low percentage tennis that basically so many of them just absolutely leather every ball, and there isn't really any tactics in the women's game. It's just who strikes the ball better on the day, and that's if you look at it. What we've had this year, where basically the the, the major tournaments in the final, you've had Rab- Rabakina and 
Savalenka, who both play very similar. They both leather every single ball, and it's whoever wins on the day. And you get quite a few of those down the um, down the rankings. And if you look just at Raducanu's um, slam win, it was basically Emma just playing her above her mean level. Um, and just every match, she was basically on big points. She was just swinging and making balls. And you just get more of that in the women's game than you do in the men's. I think if I if I were to launch another kind of slight defence of the women's game, I think you, you do get these transitional periods between kind of people like Serena and kind of a next period. And this has gone on a little bit longer. But in, in fairness, a few of the players who definitely it felt like were going to dominate the women's game, I'm talking specifically Barty and Osaka, have both left the game for different reasons. So, you know, that level of... And, you know, there were other factors kind of kicking in there, but they were players of the quality to kind of really sit at the top and dominate Grand Slams and do really well. So if you kind of throw Sviontek into the mix of that, you know, you could easily have had a very, very strong big three if things had panned out slightly differently. So, you know, it's not it's not a perfect defence by any means, but I, I do think that is quite a significant factor. And not, one that's happened less in the men's game. I think Del Potro is probably the only real star male player I can think of in the last 10, 15 years who, you know, really possibly could have been that world number one, two, three, who lost his way after winning a first Grand Slam, not through no fault of his own. Um, and it just had to happen. There were four other pretty good guys kicking around anyway. Tricky. Uh, right. Shall, shall we move on? Unless anyone has more, more defence. I mean, I, I would say, and this is like maybe a five or ten percenter, that three sets rather than five also changes things a bit i think that makes it um higher variance because you know you only have to play two good sets of tennis to knock out you know think about if, if think about if novak djokovic had lost every time he i i know we we have our opinions on novak djokovic going two sets down in the grand slam but think about the number of times he has gone two sets down in the grand slam even in the last two years i think that makes a slight difference Calvin. I think on, on both your points there, firstly on, on George's um, about Del Potro, I've said before that I think Del Potro would have made a difference as well, not just in how many he won. I don't think he'd have won another nine or ten slams, but what, what he was pre-injury was he was probably the only player who could regularly beat the other four in in majors over best of five. So even if he didn't go on to win them, he would have been an extra player who could have knocked some of them out. And I'm absolutely certain that the the numbers that we love to talk about the numbers of slams won, how many all of the big three have won. I'm certain that those th- those numbers would be different one way or another if Del Potro was around. Um, they might all have the same, but I don't think they'd have been distributed in the same way. Um, if that makes sense. Um, on your point, James, there, I I don't think it's necessarily a perfect science though, because it, it mentally changes. It's not like say, you know, you go and imagine how many times Djokovic would have been knocked out if he was best of three, because he just kind of knows he's got another set left at the end of it. So I, I think that it's, it's psychological, a bit of that. What I find alarming about the women's and it, 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 there is a valid point that best of five would have made a difference. What I find alarming about the, the women's game is how many of the top players lose so easily in straight sets at these tournaments. I think it was was it the Australian Open where I don't know with it's Kasatkina who was you know one of the top seven or eight favourites just went down like one and one in the first round or something. Mm. She lost to Harriet Dart in the first round. Yeah, yeah very things like that. Um, and there's and there, just other players you see like seeded players going down like so easily. Um, 
that I think it can only be that they that basically the a lot of the female players they come out and they just absolutely rinse the ball, and some days it goes in, some days it doesn't. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of the iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. I've got Calvin Betton, our resident tennis coach, and for the whole of the second half, George Belshaw has made it through wind, rain and train uh, to be with us this evening. We missed it last week because it was a breaking story and uh, we didn't have time to, to react, but Wimbledon have decided they will allow Russian and Belarusian players to compete at, at the championships this summer, as long as they sign a declaration of neutrality before doing so. Um, represents a U-turn on last year's blanket ban on players from the two countries playing in any events in the UK on account of the illegal invasion of Ukraine. Um, the professional tours responded with fines and threat of expulsion, and left British tennis with little choice but to row back on its ban. Ian Hewitt, the chairman of the All England Club, said, We continue to condemn totally Russia's illegal invasion and our wholehearted support remains with the people of Ukraine. This was an incredibly difficult decision, not taken lightly or without a great deal of consideration for those who will be impacted. It's our view, considering all factors, that these are the most appropriate arrangements for this year. We're thankful for the government's support as we and our fellow tennis stakeholder bodies have navigated this complex matter and agreed on conditions we believe are workable if circumstances change materially between now and the commencement of the championships. We will consider and respond accordingly. Uh, Also key to note that ranking points have been restored to grass court events this summer, but that the ban will not uh, lift for the futures events in Nottingham later this month. I know that won't um, affect many people, but I know several people who it does. So from Surbiton onwards, Russians and Belarusians back in uh, grass court events. Calvin, uh, setting aside the, the, the futures events, which, as I say, are kind of fringe, 
Um, but I know overall that's that's music to your ears, isn't it? To let let Russians and Belarusians back in. Um, yeah, I think it's the only way of doing it. I, I, it was, you know, as I've said many times on this podcast, I thought it was ridiculous that they banned them. It was a remarkable show of exceptionalism from the All England Club, hand forced by the government, I must say. And then the LTA was dragged into it, and it's ended up doing no good whatsoever. It's affected badly. Um, a lot of British players suffered for it because all the British players who did well at Wimbledon last year got nothing from it. There's certain players, like, for example, I don't know the exact numbers, but such as Liam Brody, I think might have been in the top 100 if he'd have, um, if he would have, um, if he got would points. have yeah. got the points for it. And then the financial implications of that, because for such as, as Broads and, and similar players, they'd have, that would have guaranteed them first round into all the slams, which is about 50 grand each. And this is obviously not the main issue we should be discussing in when, when going over the war and that kind of thing, but it, it just wasn't thought through. It was just a ridiculous move. And I don't mean to say, I told you so, but I said at the start, they're going to take it off next year. hundred percent. It was always going to come off because you, when do they think this war is going to end? Hmm. Like, if, if it ever ends, we could look at an Israel Palestine situation. Hmm. And so what are you going to do? Just tell the players that, that they can't play this one tournament. Something had to give one way or the other. Wimbledon would have come an exhibition event or, they were going to have to let them back in and they were never going to let it become an exhibition event. Uh, they've put themselves in such a difficult situation as well. And as I mentioned in that quote, if circumstances change materially between now and the commencement of the championships, we will consider and respond accordingly. Now, what that means, who knows? Like How there can be an escalation, I don't know. But they're obviously making it open-ended to give them wiggle room later on if they need it. But when we asked, or, um, I can't remember who it was, I, I had a call with Sally Bolton, who's the chief exec of the All England, and someone said, I think it was Mike from the Mail actually, said, what's changed? You know, there's no, nothing has technically changed in Ukraine. What's changed that's made you make this decision? And the answer was essentially, well, the rest of the tennis tour has spent a year letting Russians and Belarusians play neutrally, and it's been okay. So we sort of thought we'd fall into line. George, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think Calvin's allowed to say he told us so, to be fair. He meant it once. You called this one pretty well from the start. You know, I think me and James were sympathetic to the difficulties of the decision at the time, but. Um, well, I flipped yeah. it. I, yeah. I had a full Tory government U turn. I was initially <laughs> thought they had to be banned, and then, then I was on the fence, and then I, and then I went with public opinion. Yeah. We're swayers, James. We go with the wind. Very um, much so. But, yeah. I, I, I do I do still have degrees of sympathy with them last year, but it felt untenable as a position to carry on doing that, particularly in light of what the rest of the tour has been doing the rest of the time. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to say, you know, what's changed? Everyone else has been doing it. <laughs> but that is quite a big thing, to be honest. You know, if it, when they made the decision, they were making it pretty early on um, and arguably too early. You know, you, you could say they could have seen how the land kind of lay at that stage, but... Um, you know, th there were definitely other factors. So uh, I, I can understand it from last year, but it, it couldn't couldn't have carried on. And I actually read, you know, the sentence you're saying about, um, you know, the, the the thing you said about escalating there, James. Mm. I, I'd almost read it the other way around as actually, you know, if, some, if by some miracle the war was over by then, they could maybe play under the Russian flag. I thought they were giving leeway <laughs> that way. Um, so, well, you're clearly knows? much it's more optimist vague. than I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> 
Um, but it's good to have them back, isn't it? Because, you know, at the end of the day, it, as Calvin says, tennis is not the most important thing in this, but this is a tennis podcast. And it's we don't want people like Medvedev and Sabalenka not to be able to play hmm. the biggest events. You know, that's yeah. a good thing. And it's, it is good that the players are going to have their ranking points back. Yeah. Um, and I think if we say anything else about the war, we're just going to go over old ground. But yeah, Calvin can definitely have his cookie for being correct. <laughs> Um, Well, I'm just going to say one thing about it because I think it's an interesting uh, wrinkle in this whole story. Um, And people will know that in my job I cover the Olympics beat as well. And Mm. the UK government have been leading this charge to make sure that Russians and Belarusians are not let into the Olympics in Paris next year. Um, At the moment, the IOC, who are led by Thomas Bach, people may or may not know, are planning to find a way to let them back in as neutral athletes having previously banned them and are advising um, federations to start letting them in as well because, as people know, they've been full-stop banned from a number of different sports. And what I don't understand is how the government can, on one hand, be like writing letters on behalf of 35 different countries telling the IOC to ban Russians and Belarusians and, on the other hand, are in support of this decision to lift the ban on Russians and Belarusians, like actively lift it rather than just maintain a status quo. Um, Now, I know the reason is that the professional tours have said, well, we'll just kick you off. And then that would have caused huge damage. And it would be they would be the government who, you know, who neutered British tennis. And there's an election coming up. But shouldn't, therefore, the UK government be writing to the ATP and WTA saying you should be banning tennis players who are Russian and Belarusian. I've put this to a number of different people within the whole process and no one, they know it's an inconsistency and no one has had a satisfactory answer for me. But unfortunately, it's not that sexy a piece of news, but it it is hypocrisy uh, at the heart of it. So I wanted to bring it up. But as you say, George, from a tennis perspective, it's pretty mouthwatering, actually, he says, as catching a frog in his throat. Um, it, we've got Daniil Medvedev, who... I mean, we all said he couldn't play on clay, and then it turns out he could play on clay. Well, he said he couldn't play on clay, and it turned out he could play on clay. We all said he couldn't play on grass, but actually, the grass tournaments he did play last year, he went pretty bloody well, um, because he maxed out his schedule, you know, to, to kind of um, make up for the fact that he wasn't going to play Wimbledon, and he... Made the final in um, Rosmarlin, made the final in Haller. I, I think it could be pretty fascinating to have Medvedev, Djokovic and a few others, you know, fully fit and firing at Wimbledon this year. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's a good player and he's got a good serve. And, you know, Calvin's favourite quote is a grass court isn't a grass court these days. And Medvedev's mm. pretty bloody good on a hard court. So he's, yeah, I'd, I'd back him much more on, at Wimbledon than I would on the clay. I still... At this moment in time, I still find it very, very hard to see anyone stopping Djokovic again. He just has looked to cut above. Even in the matches where it's got slightly tricky, it's in those matches where I question Novak is just making it tricky for the sake of there being an interesting match at the tournament rather than seriously believing he's ever going to lose. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he's come to be the favourite, but yeah, he, he can go far, Medvedev. I think you, it could be quite interesting in terms of his schedule and what he plays this year, I think there'd be quite an interesting bet on will Medvedev make more points on the grass court this grass courts this year than he did last year. You know, if he cuts down one event and has a surprise early exit at Wimbledon, he might actually end up with fewer points. Um, 
but there would be lots of probably a nerdy nerdy questions opposed to people i mean also because of the way the ranking points work like he he's actually only defending like something like 300 points on the grass maybe or 400 points and he only has to win a couple of rounds in wimbledon to make that up so yes i i take your point it's possible it's possible uh, but you did mention Novak Djokovic, which is a nice segue into Monte Carlo, which we alluded to at the top of the show because it was relevant. But um, in some ways, Monte Carlo this week is as notable for who isn't there as for who is. Novak Djokovic is making his return to the tour, but the three big withdrawals due to injury, and there were more, uh, Rafa Nadal, Carlos Alcaraz and Felix auger Ali um Obviously, two of those are maybe slightly more high profile, but the Alcaraz one is particularly a victim of the Sunshine Double, we've got to start questioning Calvin how sensible it is to have a clay masters straight off the back of, of those two tournaments in the US. Yeah, it's it's now getting the stage where it's ridiculous. Um it doesn't make any sense on any level. I don't get why on the premise that it's a masters I don't get why you wouldn't move it round. I mean the only argument is that you you then have three masters in such a short space of time, which is a problem for the players who can't um the players who can't play who can't get in because of their ranking, you're then looking at basically, well, you're already looking at three out of the next six weeks where they can't play a tournament anyway. Um, but they really should have another clay court tournament in Europe before um, added in before uh, the Monte Carlo Masters. There's something, um, and I know that it's not about the journalists, but there is something of, about Monte Carlo where it's known as a tournament to almost open the clay season and kind of you have quite a lot of people come and do big round tables with a lot of the uh the biggest players and they kind of treat it as that that start of a new chapter um of the season where they're trying to build it up so I think from a kind of storytelling perspective there is something quite nice about having a big clay court event quite early into it where you can really kind of set the narrative for the next part of the season but yeah, but if, no, one, if no one's there, George, what kind of narrative does that But they have typically been there over the years, I think, I would say. I haven't got the figures, but <laughs> over the years, they have been there. Um, it's also, um, I mean, just, just the weather point of view, it's like it's probably the most scenic tournament in the world. Hmm. And we seem to just, it's like pisses it down like half the time every week. <laughs> like, you, you know, it's I just like, have it a couple of weeks later when it's really nice there. Yeah, I mean, the whole kind of thing... When you look at the weather in particular, I do think we could... Ju- I mean, the Australia... I mean, George, I know you have done this. You've done the maths on this, and it's very complicated. <laughs> but, like, the Australian Open, I know it has to be during school holidays, but it, it's it's invariably too hot, albeit this week, this year it wasn't that much. The uh, Miami and Indian Wells tournaments could certainly be held a bit later in the year as well, um, although then it would get pretty hot. And then if kill you Indian move- Wells... Or just kill Indian Wells, which is a much better shout. And then you move the clay court season one or two weeks later. You move the grass court season one or two weeks later. So you get more of it in school holidays in the UK. You move the American hard court swing a bit later. So the US Open is like all in September, which is fine because it's roasting hot in New York anyway. And and, and no one minds. But anyway, it's, it's literally never going to happen. And there's no point in me like exerting blood pressure about it. But um, it is damaging not to have like... Alcaraz and Nadal there, isn't it? And and we're I suspect we're probably only going to see Nadal once, maybe twice before the French Open. Yeah, I, was, I have to say I was a little bit surprised he hasn't hasn't made it yet. Um, 
I mean, he's kind of said he just wasn't ready to compete. Well, if he's not fit, he's um, not fit. I not mean. fit. I know, but normally he kind of does his magic trick, doesn't he, where he kind of gets the end of Australia. But I do think there is a bit of a, you know, I'm picturing Homer Simpson with the bells ringing on the end is nice sort of thing. It, <laughs> it does it does just feel gradually worse every year. Um, yeah, I, it, it'll be interesting to see how much he plays. I think there's something, you know, as much as we're kind of saying it's a, it's a bad time for Monte Carlo. Nadal not being there is kind of one of the stories of this year, isn't it? You know, how ready is he going to be? Is this his last shot? Can he conjure something out of his pocket again? You know, him him not being there actually doesn't change that much of the kind of lead-in story for the French Open um, for me. I mean, Alcaraz is the more disappointing one, really, and it's becoming a bit of a theme over the last six months, isn't he, that he's, he's kind of in and out a bit with a few kind of niggles and... He's not the only one, and we've said this before, he's still very young and other comparable people of his age. We only have to look at the British ones, Draper and Raducanu. They, they can't stay fit either. But, you know, the tour really needs Alcaraz to be there at all the Masters events at the minute, there at all the Grand Slams going deep. It's important we have this crossover period where we get as many matches with him and Novak and Rafa if, if, if Rafa does make it back to any sort of level like we're hoping. Um, so I think he he's the really big miss for me from this one but it also needs tennis as a sport needs as we talk a lot about how rivalries create sport and it needs the rivalry to start kicking in because for the last 12 months Alcaraz and Djokovic have been the two best players in the world and I think they've played once yeah. um, which yeah, is, is not it's not enough you know for one reason or another tennis needs to find a way of getting right you two are going to have to play a lot more because Djokovic yeah. isn't going to have loads of time left by the way you know we might get at his at this level that he's playing at, we might get this year and uh, push next year. But in 2025, he's not going to be this version of Djokovic. And this version of Djokovic is not the best version of Djokovic. But, you know, we need... We can't just have them. And then you throw into the mix, you know, Nadal, we want a French Open or the clay court tournament. Nadal's still in the mix. We need him there. We need um, Medvedev playing well on, on the clay or on, on, on the hard courts. And uh, Sinner as well coming come to the fore. We need... Um, Zverev back into the form that he was in this time last year, but there's not enough of of the big rivalries. There's not enough big matches. We've had very good matches this year. There's not been enough big matches to say that we're we're halfway through April at the mm. minute. Agreed. Um, big match potentially. Djokovic Sinner in the quarterfinals. I mean, George, how much do you expect Djokovic to walk through this? Or I mean, we have seen him. <laughs> Get you know he does get rusty, doesn't he? When he's been away from tennis for a while, and and Sinner's bang in form. Yeah, I mean Monte Carlo has been a bit of a funny tournament for Djokovic over the years. Because question, yeah. Um, you know he, I think he's won it twice off the top of my head, but the times he won it were hugely significant wins. You know Nadal had never lost in this tournament. Basically, this was about as strong as it got kind of outside the French Open, and you know Djokovic sort of playing at home in the kind of place where he lives. Um, those w wins were really quite significant and felt like Novak was the guy who could take it to Rafa on clay like no one had during his whole career. Um, but he, but those kind of wins aside, it, it hasn't always gone that well. Um, he's had a kind of quite a lot of up and down results, really. I, I can't really think when Novak last won this tournament, actually. 2015, um, he, he last won yeah, this tournament. it's a while ago. And um, since since then, he hasn't won more than two matches in a row. And the guys who've beaten him include Yuri Vesely, 
David Goffin, Dominic Team, Daniel Medvedev, Daniel Evans, and Alejandro Davidovich Fakina. And I, I seem to remember that Fakina match a bit weird. It was incredibly windy, I think, and he lost in three. And that 2015 version of Djokovic was arguably as good a version of Djokovic as there had been. I think you know, yeah. that's the year he fell short to Vavrinka in the final, but that he was on to win kind of all four at once then, and then obviously did it the next year, but was kind of dropping off by the end of that. And then injury, you know, he was really yeah. bloody good there. Um, so yeah, uh, it's an interesting tournament. It's, it's not one he'll take for granted. The conditions are really windy out there. It's quite a difficult tournament to mm. play in, obviously, um, kind of waterside. Um, so yeah, I, w- I wouldn't take it for granted. Sinner's definitely a guy who can cause him problems on there. And as you say, you know, when you've not played for a while, you lose that little bit of match sharpness. Jokovic is pretty good at coming back in and still looking pretty decent. But I wouldn't say he's maybe like as good as Federer was back in the day where didn't feel like Federer needed to play for months and he could just come in and kind of waltz mm. away with it. So it does take a little bit of warming into comparatively, I'd say. Uh, one man who's not warmed into the clay court particularly well is Andy Murray, who we can talk about because he is already out of Monte Carlo. Uh, he lost to Alex de Manure 1-3. Uh, Simon Cambers is out there freelancing for the Herald and spoke to him afterwards. Murray said, it was awful. Nothing was good about it. I don't know exactly why that was. I didn't play a great match in Miami, and this was worse than that. I didn't do anything well, didn't serve well, return well, forehands, backhand, shot selection. It's one of the worst I've played in my career, probably. I had a match like that last year in Doha against Bautista Agut. That was pretty bad, and maybe one or two others in my career. But in terms of how I felt on the court, it was right up there, just across the board. Uh, I've been feeling good with my body the last 10 days or so, considering we've not played much on the clay. I was feeling good, actually moving pretty well in practice, so I was optimistic, but it was really tough. Um, Calvin, do you think Murray should be playing on the clay full stop? Um, if his body's fine, then yeah, because his aim is... If he's serious in what he says he's serious about, which I entirely believe him, mm. that he wants to get back to a ranking where he's getting seeded for the slams, he's not going to win the French Open. But he needs to get ranking points. And there's three Masters. And as we discussed earlier on, the big points are in the Masters. Um, and and the Masters and the Slams. So if he wants to have a hope of getting seeded at Wimbledon and the US Open, he's got to play the clay. And, the, and if his body is fine, it's not going to affect him badly for the grass and the hard courts. There's no reason why he wouldn't play the clay. Um, he's just not playing well. He's had two tournaments. But, you know, I was, I was reading the quotes just now and... You know, they're talking about... We always have this debate now, like, you know, what's going to happen here? Is this the end? And all that. You know, he made, what did he make in Indian Wells? Didn't he make last 16 or something? He had a decent run, didn't he? Must have Draper around 32, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And he's One, had, two like, matches. Yeah. You know, he's had a decent enough year this year. Um, I, You know, if he wants to get seeded for the slams, so he's got to be top 36 in the world, um, top 32 in the world, sorry, Um He's going to have to play the clay court tournaments, but I think also, I don't know whether he puts pressure on himself, but I think everyone else puts pressure on him to go, you know, he's lost another match there, but, you know, he's had a, I think he's had a decent year. Yeah, it just feels like it's hit a little bit of a a struggle in the last two tournaments, but yeah, I mean, on the, on the whole, it's been a very good year. I, I, I have been quite surprised by these these two results, really. I mean, Lajovic on a hard court, to lose that is is disappointing, really, when you've been to a final in was it Qatar um against Medvedev and then you know losing to Draper there's kind of no shame we think he's a very high level player but that was a disappointing result and then to kind of back that up with a 
getting hammered really you know there's no two ways about it it's an incredibly one-sided scoreline against a guy who is good but is a guy murray will fancy himself against it's not like dimonor's outright brilliant on the on the clay um he doesn't have the weapons to come through you know you'd expect murray to be holding serve you know a lot more than he has done today basically so yeah i'm a little it's too early to get too worried and on the on the balance of things the year's been good but as calvin says you know he needs to get some points out of these tournaments and kind of move up the rankings and it felt a, a not too bad draw for me to to give it a go as much as people want to dress it up as a kind of top 15 seed if you're going to pick any of the seeds in the top 15 on clay i think dimonor would be probably the one i'd pick to be honest hmm um, sorry, I was getting distracted reading ahead in our running order, so I just completely went to sleep. I thought you were just enjoying my points so much that you just were. I mean, I was simultaneously listening to your dulcet tones, but I was also uh, getting distracted. Um, let's move on from Monte Carlo, I think, because we'll talk lots about it uh, next week as well. Once once it's happened, which I think is the best way to do things. Uh, there is some women's tennis going on this week. It's Billie Jean King Cup qualifiers this week, which means tennis is coming home by which I mean it's going to Coventry, of course. Where else? The home of tennis in the Midlands, kind of. Uh, GB taking on France. That is, of course, a GB team without Emma Raducanu. It's the same group that uh, went to the finals in Glasgow. So that's Dart, Watson, Bolter, and then the, the doubles player of Barnett and Nichols. Um, George looks like a pretty tough draw, I would suggest, for um, GB against France, isn't it? Yeah, I I struggle to see them coming through. To be honest, I mean, you never know. Home crowd and the, the you know these these players have pulled out some good results in the past. And the finals last year, you'd have to say, was quite a success because mm. I really didn't see them winning a match. Full stop. No. So, you know, people like Bolter and Dart and others have have stepped up in this one, and Watson as well. You know, they've all stepped up in the past and mm. kind of come up with with big wins, but. Yeah, it's, look, it's disappointing not to have Raducanu, isn't it? That's 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 the bottom line. She's the big star of the women's game at the minute, and you want her playing these ties. You know, that's not a dig at her. It's just kind of a reality that mm. you know you want your biggest names playing at home, and she also gives us the best chance of of winning bigger matches. I don't think this is unwinnable, but I the, the yeah. French team for people who haven't been keeping up with this is Caroline Garcia. Uh, Alize Cornet, Clara Burrell, and Christina Mladenovic, who you would expect to see in the doubles. I yeah, mean, maybe, Garcia, maybe it is unwinnable, actually. I was going to say, I mean, reading. you know, Gar- <laughs> Garcia, I think, has won Grand Slam titles in the doubles, as has Mladenovic, I would like to say. Yeah, Mladenovic um, is a good doubles player. Yeah, I mean, world number one. That's to see. And Alize Cornet just, I mean, just pulls it out player. of the bag. And she will absolutely, I mean, of all the players to play, Elise Corne will absolutely love like having 4,000 Brits screaming against her in Coventry. Like she will live for that. She loves those occasions. Um, if ever there was a big game player, in my opinion, it's Elise Corne, Calvin. James slightly overselling how, how aggressive the, um, the British Fed Cup crowd are there <laughs> with, their cha- with their chance of we hope we will win. Yeah. No, it's, I um, believe that we will win. That's yeah. the one, yeah. It's hardly like uh, it's hardly like Naples on a <laughs> on a big big Sunday night, is the it? The bat's old. Uh, yeah. I think that the the interesting storyline really is that obviously Emma Raducanu's British number one isn't playing, and British number two just hasn't been selected. 
Um, yeah, so that's Jodie Burridge, is that right? Yeah, at 108. And she's quite away British number one. She's 30 places above the next one, and she's 40 places above um, Katie Bolter, who's in there. Mm. So, I mean, I and, guess there's there's presumably, I mean, I'm guessing, and I wouldn't speak for Anki Othavong. I mean, I could probably ask her, I suppose, but um, I'm guessing there's an element of trying to have some consistency. That group of five, I mean, for whatever reason, works worked well together in Glasgow. But yeah, I mean, jo- Jodie's been going well as well. She won a title last week in France, I think. Yeah, yeah, she won a title. Also, um, Francesca Jones made a semi-final of a WTA event last week. Yeah, um, some people will have heard about Fran Jones before. Um, she's well known. She's born with a genetic deformity that means I think she only has three fingers on her right hand. I think I'm right yeah, in yeah. saying. Yeah, I, I know um, Fran fairly well. She's from Yorkshire. Yeah, uh, and a friend of mine used to coach her. So yeah, she um, she's missing one finger in each hand and missing three toes as well. That's to get it right. She has ectrodactyly ectodermal dysplasia. Um, but quite apart from that, she's a, a pretty good tennis player. And Calvin, we've not really. Because she had a bit of a breakthrough, I think, last summer. Um, and I feel like I've not really heard a huge amount about her since then. But yeah, I Summer noticed... before, actually. Summer before. Summer though. before. Um, but yeah, she made her first WTA semi in Bogota this week. She's up to 385 in the world. I mean, has it just been injury? We've just not really seen her out on court, to be honest. Yeah, Fran's been injured for a while, unfortunately. But um, Fran's a real competitor. She's a real, real dogfighter. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously. Fran just wouldn't have got selected, but I think it's a big, big miss, big risk not selecting British number two for all the talk of consistency and that kind of thing. And you know, let's let's be honest, they they're not sure how many matches they won that you wouldn't have expected them to win. It sounded like it was a phenomenal performance last time out. Um, and I've got a lot of time for Anne. I'm certain that she, you know, she'll have her reasons, but it's not something I would have done. I'd have, mm. um, I'd, I'd, you know, if you're going to do that, you better make sure you win the tie. <laughs> uh, if you're going to leave your, your, in theory, if you're going to leave your best player out, mm. um, yeah, and I know that um, she obviously wasn't selected for Glasgow and was expect widely expected to be selected for that because um, I remember I was in Shrewsbury on the day of selection and wasn't picked for that. Which presumably, if she had, then you know we might be a different situation. But um, yeah, surprising to see. But um, I, I mean, she'll only take it one way. I think. I mean, you know Jodie much better than I do, Calvin, but. Uh, she's a she's a bit of a fighter, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, I think there'll be disappointment, but you know, it does get to the stage where you start to get a bit pissed off at it. And look, you know, I'll go the other side of it. I've captained teams, and you don't always select the best players because you you know for various reasons there might be, and it might not be nothing personal. You might just think this is not not a good one. But you know, this is a player on the verge of the top one hundred mm. uh, and in great form. And it's it's hard to say that Katie Bolter and Harriet Dart are in great form. I, th- I think I think that's the other thing. You could argue it if you know you if you if say your your number your your best available player was in bad form and on the way down, and the others are on the way up. You're choosing to not you're choosing not only to not pick your highest ranked available player, but not but also not pick your most in form available player. Is there potentially a defensive that the other two have come up with some big match wins in the past? You know, kind of top ranked players and. That's kind of what they need here. I mean, it's, I got to question what what you know how big these match wins were. You, you know I mean, like we say, Katie Bolter had a good run, and again, look, I I do I've got a lot of time for all the girls who are in that team, um, and I think they're all good players. But Katie Bolter, um, her big wins came in two thousand and nineteen, 
four years ago. Um, you, you know, it's like you know, if we're looking at saying, oh, you know, they always turn up for the for this tournament. It's four years ago, hmm. and you know, and last time, let's be honest, last time we got through it because of the doubles. Yeah. Um, you know, we had some decent results because of the doubles. But... And let's not forget that we got in because we hosted it. <laughs> like we didn't, well, we didn't qualify. Yeah, we didn't get, yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing. You know, it's, it's I, that's where I, what miffs me a bit. And we do get in the habit of this with, particularly with the Billie Jean, Cup, King, Billie Jean King Cup team in Britain. We go, oh, but they did so well last time. Like, did they? Like, you know, was, was it that good? Hmm. Like when it was in, you know, we, we like James said, we didn't get in. Then we when we somehow found, got in through the back door, and then we won. Who did we beat? Was it Kazakhstan? Australia. Um, no, lost to Australia. Lost right? to Australia. Yeah, Kazakhstan. We, you're right. Yeah, beat Kazakhstan. We lost to Spain. Like we got through on like some sort of rubber count back, and Kazakhstan played a terrible doubles team. Like they completely <laughs> messed it up. Like with who they, you know, we we wouldn't beat the best Kazakhstan team. I know that much. So you're looking at it and go, right? Why is why are we sticking with these players then? Just sorry, just because I I was there and I forgot, but. We lost to Kazakhstan, but we won the doubles, which was the crucial rubber that we won, having lost to two singles games. And then we beat Spain 3-0 to go through. That was the, that was how the, the chips oh, yeah. fell. But yeah. yes, as you say, I mean, you know, we played six rubbers in the group and lost two of them, but just about got over the line. And then, yeah, we're, we're beaten by Australia in, in a, a deciding doubles tiebreak, which I suppose is close. I, I appreciate what you're saying. Like, it, it's not as though we beat four different teams and stormed through to the semi-finals. But, yeah. yeah, I don't know. As you say, if they win the tie, it doesn't matter. If they don't win the tie, then they've yeah. got something to prove. Um, well, they could get a wild card, couldn't they? Have to potentially... <laughs> What's uh, this I tournament's mean, yeah, the most probably. ridiculous tournament ever? They could just uh, could just offer to host it again. Like, it I mean, makes... for, that, that is probably what will happen. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's the same in the Davis Cups now. It's getting that way, isn't it? It's like, what's the point in having these knockout qualifiers where... Yeah. Even if you get knocked out, you could probably still play if you've got a good team. <laughs> <laughs> um, just because we're running short on time, we've got another couple of just like WCA quick hits to mention. Um, Gabinia Muguruza says she's taking a break until the summer and will miss the French Open and Wimbledon. She hasn't won a match since September last year and said this week that spending time with friends and family and it's been really healthy and amazing. So I'm going to lengthen this period. Um, good luck to her. I, there's some really painful social media posts from her saying that she'd really lost her way and didn't know how to win anymore. Um, Ons Jabour, meanwhile, quite the opposite. Uh, she won the title in Charleston this week uh, on clay. She beat Daria Kasatkina and then Belinda Bencic in the final without dropping a set as well. So she's clearly refound some of her best form ahead of what could be a very big swing for her. Um, and Aline Svitolina uh, made her comeback from pregnancy uh, also in Charleston. Uh, she lost 6-7, 6-2, 6-4, to Yulia Putin-Seva in a match that lasted nearly three hours. She said, I had goosebumps. It was a really, really sweet atmosphere out there. It was so nice to see so many people and they were cheering me on to push through some tough moments. Um, elsewhere, Francis TFO winning the second title of his career uh, in Houston, the tournament of which we've heard so much, mostly about rain, as well as gutting doubles finals results. Uh, and Casper Ruud also won a title in Estoril, uh, you will not be surprised to hear, given its Casperi title, that it was a 2.15 it was on clay, because that represents nine of his now ten career titles. Um, he beat Jao Souza, Baez, Alice, and then Maimi Ketmanovic en route. Uh, Calvin, you already kind of mentioned that, that that group doesn't 
fill you with any particular confidence. George, uh, do you do you give Kasparud any more credit than Calvin has for for that run? <laughs> I give him credit because he he wasn't winning anything before that. <laughs> so you know, confidence is bred by victories, and you know the lad's got a lot of a uh, lot of points to defend coming up um, that are going to be pretty tough for him to defend. So that was a a good start to the close season for him, and you know he he's someone who can do damage on this surface. You know he's got a big big booming forehand. He's his, his ball arc suits the clay quite well. So yeah, I think it's good to have him back in the mix even if I think it's very hard to see him reaching um, the final again this year. Calvin, do you, do you give him any chance of getting back to a final in, in the French Open? Rude. No, no he's no chance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is pretty remarkable. Like, I, I know we have talked about Casper Rude a lot before, but like that is pretty remarkable when you consider he reached two Grand Slam finals and was yeah. one win away from world number one last year. Like, yeah. It's pretty wild. Uh, but then what's his third best slam result? Uh, Isn't it his second round or something? That's a third superb round. question, but yeah, it is something. I think he might have made a quarterfinal somewhere uh, in the past. No, yeah, you're right. It's fourth round of the Australian Open is his third best slam result. But people are allowed to make breakthroughs. Like, what's Carlos Alcaraz's third best slam result? It's pro- probably not much better, right? Well, Carlos Alcaraz still at school. Casper <laughs> 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 Rude's like 24 or 25, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, fair point. Um, I was chatting to Ryan Penniston this week for a piece that I'm writing and talking about that match when he beat him. And he was talking, he was sort of trying, Ryan's a really nice guy, Calvin obviously knows him, and he was trying not to say that he fancied it when he drew him, but I, I sort of got the impression that he looked at it and thought, this is quite nerve-wracking, but the boy, the bloke doesn't know what he's doing on grass, and um, so, so it proved. Um, right, let's move on again, because there are other title winners to mention. Uh, Bogota, Tatiana Maria, uh, a great story from Wimbledon last year. Uh, she picked up the title. We already mentioned Fran Jones making the semis. Um, Roberto Caballes Baena won a title in Marrakesh, and I think that might be the first time I've mentioned Roberto Caballes Baena on the podcast when he's not the B-side of a match, so that's, uh, that's exciting for him. I'm sure he'll be delighted. And finally... And I, I don't know whether this is something we're going to be able to squeeze into the last 10 minutes before George has to run off to some other important engagement. But um, I thought we've been kind of reticent to talk about this, not for any particular reason, just because it's a big topic to get into. Um, but this is Tennis Unfiltered, and we should unfilter and try sometimes. Um, the jumping off point is the story that you may have seen over this week, where Nike um, ran a campaign in which they paid a woman called Dylan Mulvaney, uh, who is a trans woman and an influencer, to model one of the brand's new sports bras on social media. And as you can imagine, it, it sparked significant backlash as, as literally everything involving trans people does at the moment. Um, this is kind of in the context that there was also news last week, or maybe two weeks ago, that World Athletics have banned trans women from elite female events, uh, a move that's been kind of copied further down the pyramid in the UK and presumably in other parts of the world. Uh, increasingly, it sort of feels like trans women are being excluded from elite sport Um and people have views on that. Uh, the kind of blowback from that is that um, the the people who don't think trans women should be involved in elite sports say that their invo- inclusion excludes real, what they would call real women um, from elite sport. And there's been a campaign to boycott Nike because of it, led by the likes of Sharon Davis and Mario Mucci and, and a few others, and Martina Navratilova, who has also kind of been involved with it. She's retweeted a few 
tweets her and read out some of them. Um, one of her retweets read, women are not a parody caricature or stereotype companies. And those of you disrespectful enough not to understand that will lose customers. Hashtag Nike hates women. Hashtag trans women are con men. Hashtag boycott Nike women. Um, that was something that Martina retweeted. Uh, she also retweeted one that described Dylan Mulvaney as a biological male prancing around in a bra and pretending to be a woman. Um, another that called her a limp wristed man who's never done a day sport in their life. Um, George, the tweet you kind of brought this to everyone's attention with in, in planning was from AJ Eccles, a tennis writer, who said, Next time Martina Navratilova tries to say she's just protecting women's sport, remember the straight-up hate speech she is more than willing to share about how she really feels about trans women. This is not reasonable debate. This is hatred. Um, George, I know you, you've obviously done work around this, and I, I'm not going to pose a specific question. Maybe just give you the chance to give us a bit of reaction to that and and maybe your thoughts on the rights and wrongs of it. Yeah, I mean, so zooming out on the kind of the trans issue as a whole, I mean, this is a, a debate that, in my view, gets far too much airtime given kind of the proportion of people involved. I think it's an important issue for kind of the minority itself and they deserve the right to kind of live their lives entirely as they should. It's just such a, a disingenuous debate from so many people who really want to air it. That's my mm. kind of first overarching comment um and it you know to be perfectly honest there are people out there who want to stoke this debate for their own political means um i don't think that's overly controversial to say having said that i think the the area of debate where it's the most difficult or one of the most difficult is around women's sport and it's very difficult for me as a kind of a white man to sit around and say i it's fine for kind of biological males to compete in women's sport you know there's lots of there's a lot of kind of gray areas in that argument i'm kind of broadly for it but i understand the kind of difficulties with this conversation what i don't like at all and you've read some of those quotes there is where it strays well beyond that debate and you know there are kind of arguments to be had about protecting women's sport and you know there's all sorts of kind of I'm reading a book at the minute actually called the the data gap around kind of women. I can't remember the, the title of the book. So I'm absolutely terrible at titles, but you know, there's all sorts of things about how the world's kind of designed in for kind of five foot 10 men basically. And, you mm. know, lots of, it puts women's rights at risk and there's not even data disaggregated data collected about women full stop. So, you know, this is an actual serious issue that we're not kind of actually making the world a better place for women to live. So I, I really find it very difficult for me to weigh in and say, you know, this part of their sport you know we should make these changes etc but at the same time trans people are horrendously persecuted and some of the abuse that goes their way is absolutely horrendous so calling them a limpressy man hashtag trans women or con men i i just i just hate it i really really hate it i think it's horrible and Mm. you really now, if, I doubt Martina Navratilova is listening to this, but if you if you are, you think about some of the things you faced in your career coming up. This is the same thing you're doing to a very, very vulnerable group of people, and you should be ashamed of yourself, to be mm. honest. So that's it's my that, point of view, James. It's, it's that James Acaster bit that he does in his stand-up where he talks about edgy comedians and how their defence is they're holding people to account. And he makes the point that, yeah, because you know who's really gone without any checks and balances? The trans community. <laughs> they really need to be reined in. Um, I mean, Calvin, to kind of take a tennis view on this, because I appreciate this isn't an issue that really has... It's been it's been made a tennis issue just because Martina Navratilova was involved. But 
do do you think this is something that people do talk about in tennis and that people i know some people in women's sport are worried about you know trans women getting involved in women's sport and ruining women's sport quote unquote yeah it's 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 getting talked about more and more i think and it's i said in our whatsapp group the other day it's 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 not only it's just such such a massive can of worms Hmm. um and the difficulty i find with it and i won't pretend to be overly educated on it um is that no matter which position you take and and everybody seems to have a or most people seem to have a very very definite position on it Hmm. you're going to end up offending some person who previously who is generally a reasonable person I know, I know, as George says, that the trans community are treated terribly in this world. You don't, there's, there's, they don't deserve to be offended anymore. But I also know, you know, that, that women in general are treated pretty, pretty poorly as well. And mm. I know that, you know, educated, intelligent people who I respect are absolutely fuming about the trans situation because they, w- women, because they don't think that they should be allowed to play in the sport. And it's just such so difficult to deal with and i don't think what doesn't help is just idiots getting involved like we're seeing on on tv and like you know this this nonsense of every time keir starmer's on lbc somebody asks him do you know what a female is which is just the most pointless question hmm. uh, I've, I've ever heard and that you know some everyone's always trying to ramp ramp it up with some edge or something and as george says it, it is something that affects so few people that i don't get how they get so wound up about it um but as George and again as George made made numerous excellent points uh change for George there <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh for the one person who you would think would have had more sympathy on this who wouldn't have behaved like an absolute idiot is Martina Navratilova for what she had to come through um in the 1980s as well which is you know it, it would have been worse than it is now but again and you know ob- obviously Martina Navratilova is a gay female and I, f- I found, you know, a, a lot. Of, that's where I've been disappointed because obviously I work in tennis, so I, I happen to know a lot of gay female players because they, they were in the 1990s. There was a, a large community of that. It's le- less so now, but they've all sort of taken the same position, and I've been pretty disappointed in a lot of them. To be fair, the position that they've taken. Yeah, I mean, j- just on kind of the broader women point in society as a whole, you know, the majority of violence against women is for men, not for kind of trans men you know it's it is just something that's kind of being lobbed into this tiny small community when there's so much broader societal problems on that perspective so mm. yeah I, I it is an issue that winds me up a little bit as i say i'm not taking a strong position from a sporting stance but i think it just needs to be dealt with held at a much more reasonable level of debate um rather than this mm horrible arena we've emerged into on our podcast this week yeah yeah and i think actually just because i think i speak for everyone when i say that we're not trying to minimize the issue when we say that it's a been made into a much larger issue than it is for a very small group of people it's an enormous issue but i think the idea that there are you know huge numbers of trans women desperately chomping at the bit to play professional tennis and dominate the top 20 or win every olympic medal is a falsehood and I think it, it's a useful straw man argument for a lot of people who don't like trans people to make this a bit like the the immigrant um, the migrate uh, the immigration argument. It's a nice argument to make this argument that there are more people than there are and make the threat seem a bit bigger. The boogeyman is scary, Callum. 
Yeah, it is. I've had this argument on on the big, not just about sport, with with friends of mine. I live in Barnsley, which you know, to be honest, it's not the. We we don't have much um, in the trans community here, and one of my mates was ranting about it. He's, he obviously reads the Daily Mail and that kind of thing. He was ranting about, it and I pointed out that he's a forty two year old man and lives lived in Barnsley his entire life. How many trans people have you actually ever come across? <laughs> and it's like. You know, it's amazing how many people can get so wet up about it. But I also was hearing the other day, and I don't know what the situation is, but there's there's this one that goes around that that, that, that males can just decide to play in a female sport if yeah, they, man. which is just an absolute nonsense, isn't it? Well, yeah. I learned in the last week that that's it. apparently the the sw there's the swimmer that was obviously on a bit of dodgy ground there, but that was because of some strange college rules wasn't it yeah I, I don't know i can't remember her name and it's gone out Leah my head Thomas, is it? yeah exactly and and yeah i i don't know I don't, i'm not going to wade in on it but yes exactly the, the main point you're making calvin is correct that uh, you can't just wake up tomorrow and i hate it it's so piers morgan you can't just wake up tomorrow and say you're a woman and then go and enter the blooming french open like that that i mean that that just it's just not how it works um, like trans women have to jump through an enormous number of hoops to, for almost anything, you know, just talk about the gender recognition app that's just been passed in Scotland that might well be revoked because of a change in European or, or UK law. Um, that it's incredibly disappointing that we can't use sport as an opportunity to champion these people a bit and give them a voice and that kind of thing. And actually, uh, and maybe this is the last thing I'll say on it, I spoke to someone the other day who um, is a trans woman and plays football in a in a trans team, you know, um, a group of trans women who wanted to play together, and uh, she was telling me that yeah, this will impact grassroots sport and the, the the fact that elite trans women are now being banned from female events will stop trans women getting involved in sport, and that's a bad thing, like. Uh, at the heart of all of this, everything comes back to this. Whenever we have any conversation about tennis growing or about any sport growing, what we want is more people playing sport because playing sport is good for you. Like the science behind that is irrefutable. It's, it's even like even a flat earther couldn't tell you that sport is on the whole bad for you. So if you're going to restrict people and make do things that are actively stopping people and preventing them playing sport, I, I have to see that as a bad thing. And I don't know if anyone has anything else to say on that. Because... <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, what, a good what, monologue. I enjoyed it. What, one final slightly tongue-in-cheek comment is that um, the, the question Calvin alluded to earlier about defining a female, I used to pull my hair out with this sort of question when I was asked to define a cat at university. When I was in my <laughs> Why were you asked? What, didn't you do geography? No, I did philosophy. No, oh, and, right, uh, okay. But it's always a great question that, you know, you've, you've got a cat. At what point is it not a cat? You know, how do you describe it? It's got uh, this is Plato, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is Plato. Um, but no? a, a bit of metaphysics we go into. So you yeah, can, yeah. How much can you chop off the cat before it stops them becoming a cat? You know, these sort of questions are very difficult to actually answer philosophically. So anyone who actually has a perfect answer for what a female is, I think, deserves a Nobel Prize for being yeah, and, and a Nick, anything properly. And, and Nick Ferrari is not that man. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 this is this is the main problem like it's just and it's kind of i was reading about something the other day like alison hammond got herself in trouble for something that she said about theater performance and it's just like the pundit culture where 
people's size of reputation is not based on their expertise on a topic, but just on their popularity and charisma, means that debate about almost anything that becomes vaguely um, in vogue is completely nonsensical because it's usually being had by like Piers Morgan and some other bloody journalist. And like, I'm a journalist. We know cool. Like, we don't know things. We just hear things that people tell us and try and combine them. And then we hope to put them in front of people so they can make their own minds up. But the idea that journalists and commentators and people who just put commentator in their Twitter bio should be having these like big debates in a public forum drives me completely insane. I think it's even beyond that, even in sport. I watched about 10 minutes of football the other day, football um, on the Monday Night Football the other day, of that. I'm having a serious discussion about who who would you have playing up front for Man United next week, Vout Veghorst, or next season, Vout Veghorst or Cristiano Ronaldo. And Jamie Carragher was just repeatedly saying to Gary Neville, which one? Tell us, which one? And it's like, neither of them are playing up front for Man United next year, are they? What's the point in having this discussion? Like, and It went on for about five minutes, then Dave Jones started winging. Come on, Gary, which one? Which one will it be? It's like, well, this is just ridiculous. The worst television I've watched in years. <laughs> the death of proper analysis. No, it's the need. I think it's the need to, it's, it's the kind of the, the, it's the got you argument. Got you argument again, isn't it? Got you mm. journalism, they call it. And trying to make bold statements all the time. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. But then we are tennis unfiltered and we try and make bold statements, but we do it without being disingenuous, I like to think. Anyway, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for joining us, Calvin and George, fighting through the Midlands to be here. Um, as always, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. Tell your friends about Tennis Unfiltered and most importantly, please come back next week. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.